invite you to turn your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Luke, chapter 18. We're probably going to take off a little bit more of a chunk than we should, I should, at once, but I want to handle it as a unit with the distinct probability that I will go back and handle it in its segmenting portions in the weeks to follow. Of course, not next week. I won't be here. But um, this will be a good overview, and then you'll certainly forget it by two weeks from now. So be ready for some more. Luke chapter 18, beginning verse 9. I'll be reading out of the King James, or New King James Version, and I'll be reading um, through verse 30. 9 through verse 30. God's Word says, Also He spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank You that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. Rebuked them. But Jesus saw them, called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. When Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? But he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, See, we have left all and followed you. So he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, There is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. Well, I am tempted this morning to go back and preach last week's message. Not because you didn't get it, because some of you didn't get it, because you weren't here, but because our equipment didn't get it. Um, We were not able to record it last week because uh, Nathan and I did such a terrible job. Uh, I think it was me. But I like to share blame with people. It makes me feel better. (laughs) But let's review a little bit. I think that needs to be done. And if that presses into our time and our passage before us this morning, then so be it. I think it's important that we do so. Men ought always, always ought to pray and not lose heart. When we study the end times, this needs to be our focus. For when we keep our eyes on that prize, which is the hope of the Christian life, instead of the things on this earth, we set our attentions on what is above instead of what is below. We set our relations based upon 
God and not ourselves and others, then we ought always to pray and not lose heart. That when we live out the Christian life, one thing that we are certain will come is tribulation. For as certainly as they hated our Lord, our Lord has said that if you live the way I live and you are my disciple, they'll hate you too. And our response to that, to our enemies, and we should have enemies, just as is for the widow here, our response to the injustice that we receive from those enemies is to pray night and day. That that is where we are avenged. And that is what the unjust judge was finally willing to do for no other reason than the fact that this widow was going to be persistent in desiring after justice. And so our prayers are not to an unjust judge, but to one who loves us and one who is righteous and therefore will certainly avenge those who cry out day and night to Him, though it may not be right away. He says it will be, God will bear long with our enemies. He gives them opportunities in, to repent. And we're going to talk about that extensively this morning, what that opportunity involves. <clears throat> but He will avenge one day. And so we are called upon to bring our requests before Him. And if we, and the challenge last week was that if you, looking at your life, first of all, do not have adversaries. Second of all, do, does, don't feel you have injustice that brings you to your knees day and night. But maybe you need to really evaluate whether you are truly one of His disciples. For that portion of Scripture, while it begins with that you ought, men always ought to pray and not lose heart, ends with, when the Son of Man comes, will He really find faith on the earth? So we have a, a positive instruction at the beginning and a warning at the conclusion. And so in the midst of this, we can find great encouragement. We have a just God. And our prayers do, are not lost in the air like last week's message. They're not lost. We think of words as being spoken and kind of drifting off, and when the sound of them comes to a conclusion that, that they may or may not have lasting impact, we are pretty sure that written down words have more lasting purposes and, and, and uh, more an eternality to them uh, concept. Um, but in terms of before God, our prayers are lasting. And they're still there, ready to be heard, though the timing may not be today. They will be heard in the day. When they come into conformity with the purposes and the plan of God. And so we are called upon. The challenge is there to encourage us in prayer, but also to challenge us that if we are not praying, something is wrong. This is a theme that has been carried forward throughout Luke. What does it really mean to be a person of faith? And so I'm going to do some real serious review here by drawing you back. So let's turn in your Gospel of Luke. We're not going to leave the Gospel of Luke. I'm just going to take you back to some key phrases that we have rehearsed over and over again as the focal point. Did he die again? It's dead. No. Yes, it's on. That's going to be really scary on the thing. That was just the cooling fan turned on that you heard. It comes on and off. Need more power. Luke chapter 6. Follow with me through this series of emphatic statements of our Lord shared with us by Luke. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why you call me Lord, Lord, and do not and, and not do the things which I say? 
Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is a, like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood rose and the stream beat vehemently against the house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. The one who hears the words and does them is compared to this person, not just the hearing of it, for there are those who hear in verse 49 and did nothing. They've built on, without a foundation. And when the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell, the ruin of that house was great. We will have storms in life if we are living the Christian life. We will have them. Because when we have heard the word of God and done it and are doing it, that we have sureness. Turn with me a page or so in your Bible to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Maybe three pages. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world? and is himself destroyed or lost. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and his Father's and of the holy angels. And then jump with me to the end of this chapter. Verse 62. But Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Remember Lot's wife. And turn with me to chapter 14. Remember, Lot's wife wasn't in that passage. It was in chapter 17, but I threw it in there. It was extra. Chapter 14 of Luke, verse 27. Let's back up to verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Chapter 17. We're drawn nearer and nearer to our passage at hand. Chapter 17, verse 10. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Over and over and over again, both by direct teaching, which we have looked at, and by parabolic teaching, which, he, which we have seen uh, illustrating this truth, Christ has again called us to a level of discipleship that is, frankly, pretty foreign to us. A level that demands everything from us, withholding nothing, and complete obedience Missing nothing. This is God's expectation. And all along the way, he has referenced the fact that if this is the kind of disciple, and it's the only kind, by the way, that God is pleased with, that if this is the kind of disciple you are, you're going to have storms, you're going to have tribulations, you're going to have opposition, you're going to have those who are going to seek to entice you away from it, and... Again and again, you're going to have things of the world that want to draw your loyalties. He says, the true disciple, that one who is of faith to the very end, will have adversaries, will have injustice in this world. But this is not our focus. This is not our home. This is not our hope. Our hope is not in Social Security it's not in my retirement fund. It is not in the benefit package of my uh, employer. It's not, that, that's not where my hope is. Our hope is in the Lord. When we live out that hope, we will discover adversity in this world. Guaranteed. 
So when there's the lack of it, that's when we should be concerned. When there's a lack of adversity, then we should start to wring our hands and say, oh, what are we doing that is not according to God's word? What are we ignoring in his truth that we are not obeying in our lives? For we have not sufficient adversity here. And it's not that we go out and look for adversity and go slap somebody so they'd be mad at us. But rather we go forward and we live out the Christian life in its fullness. And it is radical. Oh, it is radical. And the only way you can do it and sustain doing it is on your knees in prayer. It is the only way you can do it. For you will have adversaries not only in the world. You really live out the Christian life. You're going to have adversaries among Christians. Whether in this church or not, perhaps. I've had it. But you really call people to this kind of obedience, this kind of, of life, you're going to have adversity. You have those that are going to treat you unjustly, unfairly. They're going to say things about you that aren't true. They're going to be accusations. They're going to gossip. They're going to do all these things. And what are you going to do? Man's nature says, get revenge. God says, get on your knees. Bring them to me. I'll remember. I'll remember those adversaries. I'll remember that injustice. And in the day, the day of vengeance, I'll remember. And I'll hear those prayers then. It will come before my throne then. And it will move me to action then. So the question is, what then is our response to our adversaries in the now? We know what God will do in the then. In that day, He will avenge us. What about between now and that day? We understand God's calling upon us, and that is when we ought always to pray and not lose heart. If we don't lose the determination that we are going to live for God in this radical way, that may produce even more enemies before we're all said and done. Jesus himself experienced that as he had those that said, that's too hard a saying, and I'm going to stop following you. And others who said, we don't like what you're saying, we're going to get angry at you and seek to kill you. Of his own hometown Nazareth, at the very beginning of his ministry, it led him to the precipices of the city, and we're going to throw him off before it even got started. We pray and don't lose heart. Not because adversaries adversaries go away, not because adversity dissipates, but because of some of what we're going to study this morning, but also because this is not our day. The day of vengeance is the Lord's, and it's called the day of the Lord. And it is one to come. So what happens between now and then? First of all, we're not going to lose heart, so we're going to spend our time in prayer, and that's going to come out here. Um, but what are we seeking then with our adversaries? What are we, how are we engaging them? And Jesus Christ gives us a great illustration of that in the next several accounts of, his, of both parables and, and, and interactions with those around him. And we want to look at that. Because we have here in verses 9 through uh, 30 a great presentation of how to become a real disciple of Jesus Christ. How do we move from being the adversary of God's people to being the agent of God? How do we make that transition? And that is really what we want for our adversaries. We want them, in the time between now and the day of judgment, to move from being our adversaries to being our brothers. That's what we want. How do we make that happen? Well, we can't. We can't make it happen. But how can we invest ourselves for the opportunity for that to happen? That's what the next portions of Scripture really portray for us um, on several levels. We're going to look at them and see a development throughout them of how we can seek that. But uh, the standard is still there, that if they reject these opportunities, it should not be your fault or mine. For if we don't engage them, 
with the truth of the gospel, their blood is on your shoulders. Let there be no mistaking that. This idea that now I've identified this person as an adversary of the gospel, and now I'm going to fall on my knees in prayer, and I'm not going to lose heart, but, I'm not also, but neither am I going to share with them the gospel because I'm just going to wait for that day when they get judged, is foreign to God's word. Jesus Christ is going to exemplify that right away. Just because there is a day of judgment, and we know that our adversaries will have, well, that, our venge- that God's vengeance will be on them then, doesn't mean that between now and then we just sit back and say, oh, you're going to get it to ourselves. Let's look at it. Before we do, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us and the opportunity this morning to look in your word. And Lord, we pray that you might bring to our mind that which we have studied so far in Luke, that we might not uh, neglect it and uh, think that somehow we can pull any portion of Scripture out without the context of what's around it. Handling a pretty significant section of your word. We don't want to do that lightly. Nor think that we can cover it all. Lord, we need to look at this passage over and over again, and yet today we want to look at its unity rather than its specificity. We want to pray that you might direct us in that by your Spirit, guard this time, and guide it. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, the very next verse after this discourse that begins to really thoroughly introduce us into the future God has planned, that we're going to pick up again in chapter 21 of Luke, um, Christ has this to say. He has something to say to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Um, basically, he walked into the average American church. Um, which is full of people trusting in themselves and despising others. We are convinced that we are righteous because I go to church. Maybe because I tithe. And I find myself praying a couple times a week. Um, Very few of you are fasting twice a week. So I just put the prayer thing out there. And because I don't extort people, I'm not unjust, I'm not an adulterer, and I'm certainly not working for the IRS. So I'm good. We look down on others who don't fall into our category of righteousness. Now, Christ has something to say about this. Here comes a man praying who has this attitude. And maybe you're here this morning, you've come with this attitude that you can walk in here and make this claim. And I doubt that most of you in this room could even make this claim of this Pharisee. He is more righteous than most of us. He has come in and he has come to the temple to pray. Um, he has every reason to think of himself as something that uh, God is to be pleased with. Um, and I love how Christ puts it. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Because really, when you pray with this attitude, you're not praying with anyone, not even God himself. The only one you're praying with is you. Because you're the only one listening. Because God's not listening. (laughs) When you come to God with this kind of praying, God isn't listening. So the only one you're praying with is yourself. And if anyone around you is praying or is listening to you, they're, they're... conclusion is, you don't have a relationship with God. You have a relationship with yourself. And so he has this attitude within him. And he's going to lift it up and, and it stays within him. And so he's, he, we might look at it and say, oh yes, he's starting off with a thanksgiving prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. That I'm not a really bad sinner like everyone else. We might say, well, this sounds like a pretty good prayer to start off with. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not a bad sinner. But then we forget what Christ said earlier in the Gospel of Luke, where he said, I have not come to save the righteous, but sinners. I've come to call sinners to repentance. 
suddenly the prayer starts to get on shaky grounds. Then he starts to rehearse all of his good religious activity. The Bible says that he left that house without being justified. He left the temple that day untouched by God's grace. He left that temple that day unforgiven. He left the temple that day with God's vengeance hanging over his head. He went to the temple. He fasted. He prayed. He brought a sacrifice, an offering. He he brought his tithes. He was uh, trying to live a righteous life. Um, And he walked away from there with the wrath of God hanging over him. Just like many church members walk out of churches today across our land, really around the world, with that same thing. They walk out with the wrath of God still hanging over them because they think that they are justifying themselves by because they're not the worst sinners in the world because they've done this religious activity and and therefore God has to be pleased with me. This is not the real faith. This is the kind of faith that God would call weak or not even weak faith. This is, this is non-faith in Him, faith in yourself, that God says, my vengeance is going to be on you. When I come, I'm not going to count you among the people of faith. I'm going to look at you and say, I don't even know you. Where did you come from? I do not know you. Then there's another kind, and this we begin with. The difference between self-righteous faith and godly sorrow and repentance. Tax collector stands off, verse 13. He doesn't stand up in the midst so to be seen and noticed. He stands afar off, keeps his head bowed, doesn't even want to look to heaven, He's beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's come to God recognizing his own sin. God says, that is such a one. The beginning of going from being an adversary of God to an agent of God begins with godly sorrow and repentance. That's how it begins. You humble yourself before God. He will exalt you. He will lift you up. And so in that state, the first step that we want to see with those who are who have arrogantly made themselves adversaries of God and His people is that they humble themselves like this publican, this tax collector. This guy was a sinner, and they were all known to be sinners. And in fact, he acknowledges it himself. I'm a horrible sinner. We're going to be introduced to one called... Zacchaeus in a little bit. Um, But uh, we have this horrible guy who knows he's a horrible guy and everyone else, I mean the Pharisee over there knew he was a horrible guy. He had sorrow over that. He humbled himself, sought God's mercy and received it. most horrible thing that can happen to a man is that he doesn't think he needs God's mercy. He doesn't think he's that bad of a sinner. I'm a pretty good person. I help old people across the street. I put in my eight hours of hard work at work. I don't get in trouble at school. And we justify ourselves just like this man did. And we're pretty certain that if God would put all of our bad things, all of our good things on a scale, that our good things will outweigh the bad things for sure. And the problem is God doesn't use that scale. We think he uses it, but he doesn't say he uses that. We won't come to God. So that first step we find here if you want to become a real disciple of Jesus Christ, is abandon the concept of self-righteousness and present yourself before God as nothing but a sinner and repent and turn from that, then you'll be on that road. You will be exalted, it says. You'll be justified. 
You'll be set right, declared righteous before God, and he'll say, okay, I know you're a sinner. You asked for my mercy. You've acknowledged your sin now. I'm going to call you righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ, and now you're on the road. But that is only the beginning of the road. Sorrow for sin. The tragedy is that most people that I encounter have never gotten that far. Sorrow for their sin. I can't go any farther with them with the gospel hardly because they never come with me that far. I can't get a lot of people to acknowledge they're sinners. Let alone feel bad about it. Every now and then I'll feel someone says, yeah, I've done some wrong things, but it's not really that bad. I didn't do any bad things. So they'll even if they're willing to acknowledge their sin, yeah, I've done some bad things, but as soon as they use that but word, you might as well throw up your hands and walk away. They might as well say, but I don't need God. Because as soon as they say, I've done some bad things, but it's not like I'm a terrible sinner, but I'm not as bad as other people, but I've seen worse, but there's hypocrites in the church, but there's this, but there's that, but there's this other thing. And so whatever fills in that blank after they say, yeah, I've done some things that are sin by God's standards, but whatever comes in after that is irrelevant. God's vengeance hangs on their head. They're going to walk away unjustified. They're going to walk away guilty. There's no sense going any further. We can't talk about God's love. We can't talk about faith. We can't talk about obedience. We can't talk about um, anything. As long as there's that three little word between I'm a sinner and whatever comes after it. There's no sense sharing anything further. Yeah, I've done a few bad things, but I generally live a pretty good life. Can't help you. Can't help you. God's wrath hangs on your head. I can't help you. I have nothing good to tell you except judgment is coming. And we're afraid to tell people that. We are, we are so sure that the first thing we have to get to is God's love and, and His mercy and forgiveness that they don't want it. They don't think they need it. That's for chumps or that's for really bad, sinful people that are in jail or something. And we're so quick to get over here that we wonder why there aren't any tears when they come to know Christ. Because you haven't let their sins sink on them. We don't have people sobbing coming to know Christ. We have them walking down there smiling. Oh, I got this great inheritance. We've talked about the inheritance and we've forgotten about the wrath that's hanging on them. Read through the sermons of the Great Awakening. See what they're about. Well, they talk about grace and mercy for the last portions of their messages. The majority of their messages were, you're a dirty, rotten sinner hanging over hell by a spider's thread. One flame of hell gets up there and licks it off and you're done. You're going to fall into the eternity fire. That sinner's in the hands of an angry God, Jonathan Edwards. It's not that he never preached grace. That came later in the sermon. We forget about that part if you read the whole sermon. But he's had to spend some time. And people ran out of the service screaming. They couldn't wait till the end of the sermon to get saved because their sin hung on them. We are in a society that... Re- Ignore sin. We call it a disease. We call it uh, something from our environment. We, uh, it's somebody's fault. It's the, the government. There should be laws. Um, we, we just need better legislation. If we'd had better judges, if we didn't get taxed like we are, if we didn't have these uh, kings and princes living like kings and princesses over us, um, we're going to rebel. That's what's going on in the Middle East. And they think that's going to solve, resolve their issues. If we can get rid of all these people living decadently who are ruling us. Which isn't any different here, by the way. 
None of that's going to resolve those issues. But you see, we've displaced responsibility. And now I'm not responsible for my sin. It's my genes. I was born this way. Well, we are all born that way. Sinners. That's the whole point. And it should hang on you, your sin. And until we are willing to get our faces on the ground and look not up to heaven for fear of his judgment coming on us at that second, we should beat upon ourselves and say, Oh, God, be merciful to me because I am a horrible sinner with no but following it. Exclamation point, period. Conclusion, I am a sinner. I have nothing else to say to you. Until we get to that point, there is nothing further for us. Nothing further for us. Nothing further. But we don't preach that anymore today. We don't tell our kids that. We don't tell our co-workers that. We don't tell people that. We make excuses for people's sin. We'll go out of the way and sin ourselves to permit their sin, to allow for their sin, to excuse their sin, to prop them up after their sin, to make the sin's consequences be alleviated from them. We'll go out of our way to do that. Why in the world won't we love people enough to point at it and say, that's sin, with no but after it? And say, you're going to hell for that. Is that what you want? Not, oh, it's wrong, but. I've heard mommies and daddies say that about their kitties. Oh, I know they're doing that, but they're trying. Really? Trying to do what? This tax collector understood. I'm a terrible sinner, but I'm trying to do better. No, but. I am a dirty, rotten sinner, and it's hanging on me. It's thrown my face into the ground. It's caused me to beat myself up, and I am where I need to be to start this process of relationship with God. I can walk out of here justified if only I let the sin of my life hang on me. We don't want that to happen. We don't want to feel bad about ourselves. We certainly don't want our children to feel bad about themselves because it might damage their self-image. Oh, when our sin begins to hang on us and drive us to our knees and drive us our faces to the ground, then we might be ready to move on. But not until then. And shame on us for running to people and say God is love and letting them have this back door into heaven where they don't ever have to repent of their sin. Shame on us. For we have left them with the vengeance of God hanging over them while they're walking around thinking they're justified, just like this Pharisee. And they're on their way to hell, thanks to you. Because you couldn't tell them that God is holy and that they're dirty, rotten sinners and deserve hell. They might not like me. They might hate me. They might treat me unjustly. They might fire me for that. They might not be my friend. They might, they might, yeah. In fact, Jesus says, not only that they might, they will. They will be your adversary. They will create injustice for you. And you will have to go to God and pray day and night. That's the solution. Not to compromise your message. Shame on us for compromising our message. First step. I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. Exclamation point. End. The last thing he says, no buts, but I'm trying, but I'm moving on the McGavern scale from opposition to acceptance. None of that. Let the sin hang on you. You are guilty before God. End of discussion. You will pay for that forever in a place of eternal torment. And if you can't get people to that point, you cannot help them any further. We talk about the Holy Spirit being the great encourager and, and, and illuminator and all that, but we forget His first ministry is the great convictor of what? Of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, of man's sin, God's righteousness, and the fact that those two things are going to meet one day. Do you understand that? 
people's sin are going to come up against God's righteousness and they're going to meet one day and it's going to be judgment. It's going to be vengeance and that's our message. And Christ looks at the audience that he had and he saw a bunch of self-righteous people and he says, listen, you are sinners. And if you won't say that before God, you are doomed. You are doomed. Because your sin and God's righteousness are going to meet one day. If you don't care for it now, when that day comes, there's judgment. Time to deal with that is now. And this is the way. It's with your face to the ground before God and say, oh man, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. I deserve everything you can throw at me and there's nothing I can do about it. There's no but. I can't offer you a single thing. I'm a sinner but. It doesn't work. I'm just a sinner. This is the first step, second step coming. I could spend a lot of time on the first step. I need to. Okay? Maybe till you run out of the room screaming. Second step is in the next account. Sinners come before God. How does he have to come? Certainly with godly sorrow over his sin, with no buts allowed. He comes first. 15, we got a great statement. Yes, it's about, you know, the disciples are rebuked. We have another group here. Uh, first group were self-righteous people. Now we have those who claim to be his disciples, and they're trying to rebuke these children from coming to him. We saw this earlier, but I want to encapsulate it here. It says, let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Now, verse 17 is what I want to focus on. Surely I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Wow, we have the second statement. First statement, you better come to God, letting your sin throw you on the ground and beat yourself up over it with no buts because you are a sinner, period. End of discussion. And God is holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And you do not want your sin to meet his righteousness in the day of judgment. You're going to come before you, you're going to bend your knee, you're going to put your face on the ground before him now, and then... The second step is you're going to have to, by simple, childlike faith, accept what he has to offer you. With simple, childlike faith, you must accept what he has to offer you. This is what children do. They just take whatever you give them. Do they earn it? Do they deserve it? They just accept it. They accept it. He says, this is what you have to be. Don't complicate this. You simply have to accept it. This is a, a gift of God's grace. You simply have to receive it as such and, be, and, and recognize that you didn't add anything to it. None of your works meant anything to it. You see these little ones running around. Well, they're not running around now. They're out in the nursery. In junior church. And... and we have to teach them to say thank you, but <laughs> they just they just accept it. Oh, thanks. And what do we train them? What do we why do we train them? Don't take candy from strangers. Why? Because they trust everyone. How silly is that? It's the exact silliness you need to be saved. You need to trust God implicitly. Childlike, simple faith. This says, God, whatever you've got for me, I've got a sin. What do you got? All i got to bring to the equation is sin. What do you have? I'll take it. It's better than the alternative because my sin, if it meets your righteousness, there's judgment. So, God, what do you have? I'll take it. The old saying when I grew up is beggars can't be choosers. We're worse than beggars. We're guilty. And so he calls us to the simple like faith, the like a little child, and he says, you can not by any means enter the kingdom of heaven without it. Without this kind of faith, you cannot by any means enter the kingdom of heaven. 
You want to add your little trifle to faith, and you are done. That's saving faith. You want to say, add any of your works, any of your activity, you want to add anything over here to this thing that God has done for us, you are finished. You are not entering the kingdom of heaven, period. You want to add to Jesus Christ? You're saying that the work of Jesus Christ on the cross isn't enough. I want to add what I've got on here. The Judaizers were great about that. And we've got those around here today. Simple faith means I am trusting only in Jesus Christ to cleanse me of all of my sin and every aspect and to make me righteous. Full justification based upon nothing that I do. Faith plus nothing. Faith in Jesus Christ. I'm simply trusting in His work alone to save me. Childlike faith. First, deep sorrow of our sin. Convicted. Faces on the ground. Asked, begging. Not asking, begging for God's mercy. Number two, childlike faith to receive whatever He gives us. So far, so good. We're all on track. We're with you, Pastor, 100% so far. And now we come to number three. We're not real disciples of Jesus yet. Started down the road. Number three. Third person he's going to encounter. A ruler. Good teacher. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Same question, right? We've already dealt with it once, twice, now a third time. What do I have to do to inherit? I heard what you say for the sinner. Yeah, they're self-righteous people. Okay. Here's all you can. Yeah, got to have a baby thing. Okay, I got that. Um, What do I have to do? There's certainly a third way. There's not 30 ways. It's one way. But he says, what do I have to do? He starts off immediately challenging the authenticity of the request. He says, you call me good, you don't even believe it. He immediately goes and takes this man back to step one. If you really believe that God is good and Jesus is God, you have to you should be here crying and not asking this like a trick question. You would be on your face crying and say, I'll take whatever you have. But he asks the same stupid question, what do I have to do? So Christ answers, I'll I'll throw one out at you. You want to see it? You know the commandments. Yeah, don't commit murder, adultery, steal, stuff like that. Yep. All these I've kept in my youth. Verse 21, huge, self-confident, overstated position. None of us would ever make that, would we? All these I've kept in my youth. Horrible. So here's a man who wants to justify himself. Sounds like verse 9, not so long ago. So Jesus heard this. He says, okay, well, let's just uh, throw one thing in there. Let me just, let's just immediately clarify the water with the mud you're trying to muck up in there. And don't be surprised that people want to stir up this mud. They want to stir up these questions and issues and things like that to muddy the waters of salvation fundamentally because they don't want to acknowledge they're sinners. The reason they stir up this mud and try to make it something weird like their unique example. I'm a unique example. I've not ever sinned. I never broke the commandments. So what? Is there anything else? Yeah, let's clarify the waters right now. All the mud is going to precipitate right out of this right away. One simple thing. Let's get to your heart. Give it up. Give it up. Give me the most precious thing in your heart. Give it up. You see, you started the road. You're a sinner. You recognize it. My fear is that if you recognized it mentally and not any other way, that that may not have been true godly sorrow. 
If you just made mental sense, yeah, I'm a sinner, okay. Then you've never understood your sin. You've never really felt the righteousness of God and the weight of your sin compared to it. And then simple faith to receive the gift of God, and, and maybe you're even there. And so, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I remember. I, I'll just accept it, and, and yeah. Okay, now, that was real sorrow and repentance, and that was real faith, real simple salvific faith. Then I'll take whatever's in your heart. What's precious to you? I'll take it. Give it to me. I'll take it if you give it to me. Whatever's most precious. Do you trust me with the most precious thing in your heart? For this man, it was his wealth. Uh, sell everything you have, give it away, and come follow me. That should clear the waters. You're kind of radical. I think you're kind of insane. You know, I'm just a few years to retirement here. You don't realize how much I have. You don't know what you're asking me. He knows exactly what he's asking. And he's going to press it even further later on and earlier. He's done it both earlier in Luke and later on. He'll do it again. Um, <laughs> do you hate father, mother, brother, sister, child, parent? Give me the most precious thing in your heart. And when it's out of there, then you'll know you're my disciple. When it's gone, and you've given it up to me, then you know you're my disciple. What have you given up that's so precious to you? I can find it. It's not hard. All I have to do is plod around a little bit until I hit a nerve that really gets you mad. Mad enough to leave. That's all I, and then I finally I find something that's more precious to you than Jesus. That I know who your God is. That's who your God is. That's what your God is. That's it. Your God is in Jesus once I find it. Will you serve God even if it means leaving your wife behind because she won't? twenties dinner we talked about Billy Sunday a lot. He lost his family. At least his children. They went into the very things he preached against. They went into gambling and drinking. That was their choice. You can blame his parenting or you can say, you know, he gave his kids to God. He said, I'll serve you even if it means I have to be away from home. What's so precious to you that's taking the place of God? That if I said, give it up so you can serve the Lord, that you would walk away like this man. I've seen, I've dealt with parents who refuse to give up their kids for the Lord's service. And they told me that flat out. You leave my daughter alone because we don't want her to become a missionary. Because then she'd have to be away. And we don't want her away. So guess who her God was? Was in Jesus. One day, her sin and God's righteousness are going to meet. And I believe that to this day. Because her God was her children. And when I hear parents say, I'll do anything for my kids, 
all I need to hear. I know your God is there. And it's not Jesus. Don't you dare claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and stand up for your kids against God's word. Don't you dare claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, stand up for anyone in their sin against God's word. Don't you dare claim something and not put everything in your life on the line for it. If you are willing to save something, you're going to lose your life. Didn't he say that a little earlier? Didn't we read that here in Luke? Until you're willing to lose it all for Jesus, Jesus isn't your God. Put it on the line. We had a play here one night where we talked about John and Betty Stam. And you can and you look at missionary martyrs all through history, and what you'll see consistently is that they counted a small thing. Then they measured out their life to say, I must follow Jesus Christ, and if that means I lose my life, or I lose my uh, for them they had to put their child in a thing and just trust God. If there's the child lives or dies, it's in God's hands. We're here to serve God. You hear that testimony over and over and over again. Let me tell you something. We call them weirdos. God calls them children, his children. Until we're a little weirder like that, we can't be called by God's name, I don't believe. Sound radical? That's exactly the point that Jesus is making. That which is more precious in your sight than obeying this word is your God. And don't you dare sit here and claim Jesus as that. Number one, you have to know you're a sinner and be on your face and feel that sin. And let it weigh you down and put you down and, and, and beat yourself over that sin. You must by simple faith come to God and receive His gift knowing that you don't deserve it. And there's nothing you can do to earn it. You just have to accept it. You're the baby here. And you just need to be cared for by your Heavenly Father. And you can't add to it and you can't do anything to deserve it. I have to simply accept it as something from God's hand. Period. End of discussion. And then you must trust in the Lord with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. And He must own you. That there be no other gods before Him in your life. And if you don't follow this outline in these three accounts, then you are none of His. I don't care where it breaks down in these three categories. If it breaks down anywhere in this in your life, you are none of His. You're deceiving yourself. The truth isn't in you. That's why this in Luke follows verse 8 that says, When the Son of Man comes, will He really find faith on the earth? We have boiled faith down to this little stupid little prayer at one point in our life and we've ignored all the rest and God says, that's not my disciple. Here's what it means. Let your sin weigh you down until your face is on the ground you're beating yourself for it. And then, by simple childlike faith, receive what only God can do for you because you can't do a thing for yourself, you little infant. Without God, you're dead. Just as much as little Oliver or little Charlotte, you set them down, see what they can do for themselves. What's going to happen to them? They'll die. And so will everyone who won't accept what God can do for you. God alone can do for you. You'll die. And then you're going to have to make God your God center in your life. Nothing else there. You have something in your heart today that is more precious to you than your faith and that is your God. I don't care if it's your career. I don't care if it's your religious activity. I don't care if it's your family members. I don't care who it is. What it is. If it's your bank account, if it's your car, if it's your house, I don't care. It's your God. Don't claim Christ. Don't do it. Because you would just be lying. And the only one you're really lying to is yourself. God is not mocked. 
What you reap is what you will sow. He shares no place with an idol. So you can leave here today two ways from what I can understand here in this passage. Like the rich man, you can walk away sorrowful because you don't want to give up your God. You can leave here like the self-righteous Pharisee thinking you're better than responding to a message like this. You can leave here because you are too advanced and mature and complicated to accept something from God like a baby. In each one of those ways, you will leave here with the wrath of God hanging on your head. And one day, your sin and His righteousness will meet, and it will be your judgment. He will avenge you. Or you can respond by selling all that you have and giving it away if that's your God. Give up your God and go to Christ. You can come to Jesus as a little baby. You can Put your face to the ground and beat yourself and call out for his mercy and humble yourself. Those responses God will respond to with grace and mercy. What I'm asking you to do this morning is impossible. Jesus Christ reiterates that in the passage. I'm not going to give it the time it deserves, but I will in a couple, three, four weeks. What I'm asking of you today is impossible. Your arrogance, your pride, or self-deception is too great to overcome. I can't do it by my words. I can't convince you of it. I can't penetrate the fog that you've created around yourselves to insulate yourself from the truth. I can't do it. And I understand that, and Jesus Christ communicated that, that there are impossible things that are easier than for some of you to enter the kingdom of God, some of us. Praise God for verse 27. The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. You give up your house, your wealth, your relationships for the kingdom of God. As impossible as that sounds, and I've had people tell me, Pastor, I just can't do it. Strangely, they think it's easy for me to do it. Well, it's easy for you, but I can't do that. Um, It's impossible for me. I don't have the strength within me to do that. But I trust God to do it. And then I believe by simple faith this promise that if I make God my God and no other, I'll receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. I see Christians foolishly clinging to temporal things and people, making them their God, and then griping when God doesn't bless them. Well, if he's not your God, don't expect him anything from you. You have no gripe or complaint. He does. His complaint is that he's not your God. You got other gods in your life. Go ask them for eternal life. Because you won't give them up for him. So he's not yours and you're not his.
Christian life is suddenly a little more significant than praying a little prayer, isn't it? We jump up and down when someone prays this prayer, say they got saved, they got saved, and the fact is, is they started. Now let's find out. This Jesus did over a course of three years. Today you might be sitting here and saying, I've been saved. I got saved. I prayed that prayer. I've been baptized even. I'm a member. And all I say is that doesn't justify you. You never let sin weigh you. Your sin hang on you. You never beat yourself and put yourself a face on the ground and acknowledging your sin before God. Then you are none of His. If you have added one thing to the work of Jesus Christ that you are trusting in, then you are none of His. If you hold something so dear to you that you would never give it up for God, you are none of His. My challenge to you is to correct that today. Because at any time, with great suddenness, and without warning, your sin and God's righteousness will meet. That will be a day of judgment. For he will avenge the elect who cry out day and night to him. Right now he's bearing long, I don't know how much longer, to take care of it while it's still the day. Night's coming. 